0: I think the artist mindset is counter to that polarization effect because if you're trying to be creative, you want as much inspiration for that creativity as possible. And shutting yourself down to other artists, I think, is is just an inherently bad thing to do. And artists sense this and, and um, are more than willing to step outside of whatever particular box that they happen to be in.
1: Hey everyone it's Jenna so today is Labor Day and I'm gonna be honest we have some pretty heavy episodes of democracy works coming up in the next few weeks so we thought we would keep it a little lighter this week and air a conversation about music and democracy It's actually a nice follow-up to our discussion last week with Aaron Mabin about how he views the relationship between visual art and activism. This week, we are diving deep into music nerd territory with Adam Gustafson, a professor of music at Penn State. He and I talked about everything from bluegrass to disco. Did you know disco was political? I sure didn't before we recorded this episode. We also look at how music can break down barriers and push past political polarization, despite what the record industry and streaming app algorithms might be telling us to do or to listen to. We recorded this interview before Old Town Road blew up the charts, but based on what Adam says about the cross-cutting power of music, it's not hard to see why it did. We'll return to our normal format next week, but for now, have a great holiday week and enjoy this conversation about music and democracy. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I am excited to talk with you today all about the role of music in a democracy. Um, you and I exchanged a couple of rambling music nerd <laughs> emails in preparation for this interview. Uh, and I actually want to start with something that that you said uh, in, in one of those notes. You referenced that all art is political. And uh, I think we'll probably talk about what that looks like today. But to start off, I'm wondering... Has has it always been that way? Has music always been political? And and if not, where did it start?
0: Well, certainly, I mean, politicals, I think, become a very broad term, which kind of means almost anything. Uh, But I think what I was kind of referring to when I said that was the idea that all art. Implies a value, uh, and it doesn't matter what genre you're listening to. Implicit in that are specific values that are created by uh, the cultures that we live in, the context that we observe through life, uh, specifically the context the artists are observing. So, um, I suppose that's what I mean. I think, uh, I think in that exchange, I gave the the example of. Um, Pick any Ed Sheeran love song, and uh, you're getting a very specific version of what love means in those contexts. And it's a very sort of Americanized understanding of it. We don't hear a lot of hit singles by Ed Sheeran about arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these values are, are sort of built around the art that's being presented. How
1: did this start? Has art always always been political?
0: Well, I mean, especially with music, you can go all the way back to ancient Greeks who believed that certain scales, you know, were going to propel men into warfare or make them better lovers, uh, you know, and then you kind of work your way up through the sort of Western trajectory of, of music development. And yeah, I mean, it's always been there to sort of either challenge or to uh, reinforce specific ideologies, whether they be, you know, the church or whether they be democracy or, you know, sort of a contemporary Western living. It's, it's kind of always been a part of it.
1: Oh, that's interesting I, I think we we often think a lot about you know the, the civil rights era as as maybe almost almost like an outlier of like this is really a time when things were amped up but it's, it's it's interesting to hear you say that it really has kind of been been the the case all along
0: sure yeah well and especially with that era I actually make the argument that the following era was more impactful in terms of its political sensibilities. Uh, The rise of disco, for example, um, that is a music that doesn't seem to present an overt political motive, but it's really bringing together disparate groups in a way that hadn't been done before and you know the music and the party lifestyle that it was supporting and promoting was um something that enabled people of different races people of different gender identities to all sort of come together under this umbrella and you know say what you will about the civil rights movement and the music that went along with it that was a very pointed political motive but you know what disco is doing is actually Following through on what those agendas were that were being mentioned in the you know the late fifties and early sixties as we're pushing toward, you know that sort of culminating late sixties era.
1: So what is what does this landscape look like today? You mentioned Ed Sheeran before, but like to you know the today's pop stars. How how do they fit into this picture? Yeah,
0: it's an interesting era. I think we're kind of re-entering a phase of of really engaged. Music And it's happening, it seems like, across multiple genres. Um, the the most obvious example being, you know, the the world of hip-hop in the last four or five years has just exploded with commentary uh, in a way that we really haven't seen since, uh, you know, the early 90s um, in terms of, of that sort of idea of music kind of saying something of substance and challenging people. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had uh, Childish Gambino come out with This Is America, Joyner Lucas' I'm Not a Racist. These are very pointed songs. Um, we also see it in sort of the Americana movement or whatever we're calling it, uh, neo-folk. I don't know which label to choose, but, you know, you have these sort of folk artists like the Avid Brothers or um, on more of the countryside, Jason Isbell, who are putting out songs that are speaking about realities and speaking about lived truths and experience in a way that we really were kind of missing, I think, you know, even five or 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. And so on the, on the, the, Consumer side, in some ways, we have access to more music than ever through platforms like Spotify and, and Pandora. But at the, at the same time, it's also easier to go further into your little bubble of, you know, what you what you already like to listen to, and not maybe hear some of those those different points of view that that are are coming across. So, uh, how does that all all factor into this? this sure. Landscape? Yeah, I
0: was. Um Uh, I think the statistic is 43% of music sales last year were streaming sales. Um, And, you know, that brings up a host of issues. Ownership, um, if you're an audiophile nerd like myself, sound quality. um, But access and and sort of that siloing effect is one of the big concerns. Um, It's been my experience, uh, and this is anecdotal, but it's been my experience that the students that I teach uh, typically don't silo as much as you think they would. While they do, you know, you have things like Pandora, which sort of generate lists for you based on what you've selected, they keep multiple lists going at any given time and are more than willing to jump from silo to silo uh, in a very eclectic way. So um, I think that you know the risk is definitely there, but in practice, I think most people are still able to um, use that technology in a way that does give them access to more rather than Silo siloing them off to very specific genres.
1: That is a very um, optimistic point of view. <laughs> um, but the other side of it, I think, is that these are also companies that that exist to make money. I mean, money has always been in you know recorded music on on some level, but now there's kind of this incentive to move certain songs to the top of the feed, or maybe give, there's you know, more incentive to put songs in front of people than than others or, you know, what Absolutely. does that relationship look mm-hmm.
0: like? Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, you have that, but you've, as you mentioned, you've had this sort of pull since the beginning of, of the recording industry, essentially, where you end up with this sort of artistic spectrum where you have the corporate interest on one side, which is to commodify whatever the song is and to make sure that you're Doing whatever you can to make as much money off of it, but then you have the artist on the other side who's constantly pulling toward that idea of creating a work that is bigger than just sort of that commercialized understanding of music, and it has ebbed and flowed throughout history. But um, you know, you can go all the way back to Paola in the late 50s and early 60s, where people are paying off DJs to put songs on high rotation versus other songs. You can go back to Tin Pan Alley pluggers in the late 18 and early 1900s, who are you know basically paying off the piano player. Or in the local bar to only play certain songs. Um, so, this idea of trying to, I guess, steer the market in some way, I think that's just a part of America's pop music industry.
1: Um, you, you mentioned that your students are keeping multiple playlists going and, and not maybe as siloed as, as we, we might assume that that they might be on streaming services. But do you, do you know at all whether they're kind of taking seriously the, the messages that are coming across in, in some of those songs?
0: Um, I mean, that's a hard thing to kind of quantify, I suppose. Um, I try, I suppose, I guess in my own interactions with these students to, you know, if they're going to present a perspective to take it as though they're presenting it in a serious way. Um, I guess I would I would say that, you know, music always is is that balancing act between entertaining, but also in these these musics that have a more pointed message, getting that message across um, and. You know, I guess to me, time will tell, uh, you know, how seriously they're taking these messages. But I would I would look to, you know, uh, the rise of 90s rap and hip hop, especially the rise of West Coast rap with its sort of notion of keeping it real. And this idea that they're presenting something very lived and that's extremely problematic in one sense. But in another sense, you know, the kids that were consuming that stuff were mostly suburban white kids which seems like maybe those ideas aren't matching up. but if you look at the way then that hip-hop has gone on to kind of become the the dominant sound of music and you hear it even in country today, you'll hear people with turntables scratching in the middle of a country song. Um, I think maybe maybe if the specific message isn't being heard or observed, the idea that the the, the overarching message or the ethos of what that is being accepted has, provided a voice for a lot of artists who otherwise wouldn't have them. Um, And, you know, sort of to move it to a contemporary side, uh, yeah, I think when, you know, when Joyner Lucas put out, I'm Not a Racist, that was something that caused a stir. And I think that the reaction to that wasn't a reaction that was passive in any sense. Nobody was listening to that song. I don't think you can listen to that song and go... I liked it, but I didn't like the message. I mean, it, it really attacks you and, and, and sort of provokes that response. Uh, you see the same thing with, uh, you know, Kanye West, who many people think have just gone off, you know, the deep end and has gone completely crazy. But what he's doing is kind of attacking the very silo idea. Right. Um, as he presents these sort of pro-Trump diatribes, uh, what he's doing is is really breaking that notion that hip hop is specifically of this mindset and that Maybe isn't being observed as in people are following what he's saying, but it certainly is stretching the conversation in a way that I think is something that only music can do.
1: And do you think it's it's easier today to to stretch that that conversation so to speak as the the fall of the radio record label kind of conglomeration happens uh, do you yeah do you think it's it's easier for artists to have have those those conversations and kind of get their messages out
0: Yeah I mean you see that with you know uh, Beyonce seems to drop a new track every other day now and she's not doing it really through any kind of major uh you know sort of traditional recording mechanism where you sort of put out this finished work and then hope it sells. I mean, she's just dropping tracks online and you kind of go follow them. She's not the only band doing this. There are lots of different examples of people, you know, using the the accessibility of the internet and of of streaming services to find avenues of of distribution that just weren't available before. Uh, You know, it's not so apparent now, but even 10 years ago, YouTube was a great vessel for artists looking to have a career without going that traditional route of having to be signed and promoted and, and go through that sort of traditional distribution channel.
1: Right. But I guess the other side of that might be that it's also more difficult for artists to make a living, right? So they can they can reach more people, but maybe the kind of monetization that existed behind the, that record label structure hasn't necessarily trickled down to today's landscape. Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and I guess, uh, you know, I, I, being the optimist that I am, I mean, you can find examples of if you go, you know, back to early, the the rise of, of early R&B when it was race music and early country when it was called hillbilly music, those guys were getting paid five bucks a pop for a song. And once they recorded it, they were sort of cut to the wind and, and, and you know, didn't make a dime. So, you know, you do see this flowering of the music industry, especially the recording end of it in the, the 70s through the 90s. Um, but we're kind of back to this more grassroots model for a lot of artists. Uh, and so, yeah, the exposure is there. Uh, the money aspect of it, you know, this idea of becoming a millionaire overnight is not maybe so apparent with these these sort of mid-level artists. But I think, that they're able to keep a pretty decent level of activity going, and they're able to sustain these careers, even if they're not becoming megastars, which is sort of the traditional expectation of what a pop star should be.
1: Mm-hmm. One one argument I was that's kind of fresh in my mind right now. I don't know if you know the, the guitarist Mark Rebo. Um, he has he's written about kind of artist rights and 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 things like this. But to on this this point in particular, he his argument is that. Um, some of these these barriers to entry are g- kind of restricting certain groups from entering the the musical landscape. So based on class or based on race, people are kind of kept out of the the marketplace of musical ideas, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you even see that today with you know YouTube being a great example. Of ten years ago, it was possible to create your own career on that platform. And now, if you look, um, the uh, Every artist now is being tracked by Vivo, which is this sort of uh, company that exists on YouTube. But it's really a sort of shadow company for the major record labels to kind of control what's happening within the YouTube landscape. And so you're right, those barriers do exist. But it, it seems to me that every time one of these barriers pops up, the artists kind of find another way to circumvent, you know, to get around what's going on. And the technology is just another vehicle for that happening, you know, and we see this historically again, you know, uh, take traditional instruments away and artists find other instruments to use to create that, you know, uh, take traditional avenues of sort of the recording industry away and suddenly we find other avenues. And that seems to be um, something that's still very much a, a part of music today. You know, we have the capacity now for a kid in their dorm room to create really a high level of recording quality and to put something into the world that really didn't exist, you know, even 20 years ago. And so there certainly are barriers to entry, but there are an equal number of sort of points of entry that, that just didn't exist before.
1: Right. Uh, so one of the things that we talked about on the, the very first episode of this this podcast was about, um, so that episode was about sports and, you know, um, Colin Kaepernick, athlete protests. And something you hear people say a lot is that sports and politics should be separate. And I, I've heard um, you know artists and and people I talk to at concerts say kind of the the same thing that you know this is really should just be entertainment and keep politics at the door when you going to the concert venue what are what are your thoughts on, yeah. on that relationship
0: it's a it's i think it's a slippery slope argument of again you know uh, those I find that the folks who typically say that are saying it about something that they happen to disagree with right when it reinforces whatever they believe in they don't have such a problem with it it's when mm-hmm. something kind of goes wonky in an area that they disagree with. Uh, And you see that uh, specifically, you know, there are lots of examples in country, for example, of, uh, you know, an artist coming out and saying something that doesn't sort of fit in line with what that sort of country identity is. You know, uh, Jason Isbell being a great example of an artist who works in early Americana roots music, but when you hear his songs or when you listen to him give interviews is a rather left-leaning guy and it just doesn't seem to mix and it has arguably hurt his career he's never kind of ascended or he was ascending and then kind of plateaued because of this Uh, another great example is um, the Dixie Chicks in the early 2000s when they criticized George Bush and uh, all of a sudden you know you have this country group criticizing a sitting Republican president, Walmart pulls all their albums and they're basically toast after that. I mean, you know, they're within a few years, they end up breaking up, not specifically because of that, but it certainly didn't help. Um, and, you, you know, there are bigger issues there with gender and who as an artist has the right to say what. But um, this notion of, you know, if you go against the grain, that's when art shouldn't be political. If it's reinforcing what you believe, then it seems to be it seems to be okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, I hear that a lot in the the uh, bluegrass world too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bluegrass bands tend to come from Asheville, North Carolina, right. and Boulder, <laughs> Colorado, places like that. But their their fans tend to be more more conservative. Mm-hmm.
0: But that, to me, is the life cycle, right? Is that you try to build this critical mass that then gets large enough to propel whatever genre it is into a spotlight. Um, the problem is that then you sort of get this cycle of expectation. And I think that's what happened with with especially the West Coast scene uh, in rap and hip hop in the 90s was that it built uh, that following around this notion that what we're speaking is a truth, right? And then all of a sudden you start seeing advertisers start slipping in brand names in the middle of these songs. So, you know, you start hearing rappers talking about Big Macs and Hennessy and, you know, Lincolns. And, you know, all of a sudden the audience starts to kind of realize that, you know, you're kind of running contradictory to the very ideology that you're selling. Um, So I think it's dependent on that. You know, you need that critical mass initially to to even prove a viability for the interests that are going to eventually be selling your music. The problem is that you then fall into a silo or a channel that you have a really hard time getting out of. Um, And, you know, it seems like every genre goes through this sort of morphing every every generation or so where, uh, you know, you could make the same argument that punk in the late 70s and early 80s sounds very different than punk in the early 90s as it sort of goes into a, a you know a less chaotic and a less sort of uh, you know this this is sort of embracing of just destroy all structures it kind of moves more into a, a, a that sort of southern california punk sound which is a little more laid back in what it's trying to do even though it still has the same edginess to it it has to morph and that's when the fun stuff to me starts happening. So I don't know if that actually answered the question or not, but um, I think that you need to have that sort of groundswell to, to even get noticed. And that's sort of what music building is.
1: Yeah, And and to, to tie this back around to, to democracy, these groups, I mean, as as people, like, you know, music in some ways, it seems form is 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 the glue that holds these these groups together and allows, you know, communities to form that maybe will then spill out into to other aspects of life.
0: Certainly. Yeah. And, you know, but what a great democratic idea, right? I mean, isn't that the the entire political system, right? Find those who agree with you, amass a crowd, and represent them, and try to, you know, seek out how to deal with their interests. Music is doing the same thing. Um, there's a danger to it, uh, and and lots of artists have, have attacked that and have been uncomfortable with it. We mentioned Kanye. Uh, Bob Dylan does the same thing in the mid-60s, where he attacks the folkies by going electric, uh, you know, and, and doing that is his sort of calling card of, you know, you should never be too comfortable in any identity, you should always be questioning. Um, But he had to amass that following of folks before he could break their hearts. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting sort of life cycle. Right.
1: Right. So we we talk a lot about kind of music as protests and as dissents. But on the other side of that coin, um, music can also be used as as propaganda.
0: Sure. Right. So mm-hmm. can, can you
1: talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. Right. Well, one person's protest is another person's, you know, uh, identity. So it's, you know, they're all kind of forms of, again, sort of building these larger social structures that we then attach ourselves to. Um, and yeah, we see it all the time. I mean, we see you turn on your TV during the Olympics and when the national anthem starts playing, we all sing along and, you know, in tears are in our eyes because we're watching people who have fulfilled these these things that represent our country. Um, and that very notion of a national anthem is built around this idea of of sort of instilling a value and instilling an identity that is specific to whatever country you're, you're a part of. Um, and it doesn't have to be that specific. Uh, country, uh, as, as we're coming out of the 60s, country takes a very hard line stand that we're going to sort of identify as this anti-hippie, anti-uber-left sort of uh, uh, ideology. And so you end up, you know, with songs like Okie from Muskogee, which are just pretty blatantly, we are not this, you know, and then that's a trajectory that takes country along for the next 20 or 30 years. And, and the ideology becomes about reinforcing an identity rather than, you know, sort of protesting or, or building against something.
1: Let's shift gears here and, and talk about music making. Sure. So how um, it, it how does how does democracy play in there? If you have people coming together to try to agree on one song or one album or, you know, whatever it is that they're they're trying to produce. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, 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 uh, you know work also as a conductor and it's amazing to see the very process as something that is a mass of individuals coming together to then sort of work toward one singular goal that to me seems like the very definition of democracy. Um, and, and you see musical entire movements sort of cropping up around this idea. Um, uh, you mentioned jazz, but I actually argue that punk is the most democratic of, of the music making uh, genres because jazz, you have to have a skill set at the very mm-hmm. least. It, it's, it's pretty exclusive. You've got to have chops to play in that genre. Punk you can get a guitar, turn the distortion up and just beat the snot out of it. And you've got a song, right? And I don't say that in any kind of pejorative sense. That's what it's built around is just this sort of anybody can access this, you know, um, and, and this process of just getting a bunch of people together who feel like they have something to say and kind of coalescing around that, that idea in sound is, is very much what the entire process is about.
1: You mentioned at the at the very beginning you know that that music tends to follow the kind of cultural norms of wherever it's it's being produced and, and consumed do you see changes coming there as some of those walls break down thanks to sharing and streaming and, and all of that
0: yeah I mean you see a lot of it especially uh, in the world of EDM um, you're getting a lot of collaboration you're getting a lot of artists who really just wouldn't have ever otherwise, come together, coming together around that. Uh, y- again, you have a music that is that is very much built around the digital world, but is still very much a live experience. You're, you're supposed to take that in in a context. And that context is a lot of different people coming together to hear, you know, and, and to do naughty things and to do other things during a concert. But the idea is that the music is kind of driving this platform for people who otherwise... Would never come together to to do that. Uh, you're seeing it in other worlds. Uh, there's a lot of uh, because the pressure of becoming, you know, sort of that singular pop star, the the 1980s Michael Jackson model of, you know, there are only three good pop stars in the world, and everybody else kind of is a one-hit wonder. That model's dead, and so you have a lot of artists who are. Um, freed by that concept, who are jumping into other spaces. So, you know, people like Ben Folds, who are jumping into uh, the classical world. He's teaming up with Carolyn Shaw, who's also worked with Jay-Z, who, you know, these people have kind of been, uh, they're they're just running around now. And. Playing with sound in a really unique way and coming up with stuff that um, is kind of reviving uh, the the symphonic world in in really cool and creative ways um, and and definitely you know creating sounds in, in in genres that we're not even ready for yet.
1: We've talked on this this show before about how polarized many aspects of our lives are not, not only our politics but increasingly the the types of businesses that that we patronize and and on down the line but you've argued that music maybe does not fit that mold and I, I'm curious why you you think that is
0: yeah I would I would actually argue that music has never fit that mold that music constantly offers a counter narrative especially in the context of American pop music um, and you can you can take this all the way back uh, you know you have uh, record companies in the 40s and 50s that are coming out and, you know, that are doing simultaneously R&B and country, usually with the same artists, usually with the same songs. And so you get these fabulous record companies like uh, King Records, for example, in in Cincinnati. uh, Sid Nathan started, you know, this hillbilly artist, uh, not artist, but this hillbilly guy with an interest in hillbilly music starts this this record company that almost immediately starts also doing race music. And he hires a black record producer who is producing country, who is producing r and B. The artists themselves are throwing bluegrass songs over to the R&B side and back and forth. Um, you have a young James Brown who's going to that record company uh, early on and is singing back up on, on uh, you know, bluegrass songs because, as he's trying to sort of make his name. Um, you constantly have this experimentation, jazz being another great example of, you know, yes, there are Problematic instances in the jazz world, where where you see America's, uh, specifically in terms of race, coming into play in a negative way. But for every time you see that, there are ten instances of artists from varying backgrounds, from varying ideologies, who are just countering that narrative by coming together and collaborating. The very action of coming together is, you know, something that that is very very much uh uh, you know against the grain of sort of the polarizing effect that seems to be happening and you see it today you know you have artists uh, and 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 producers uh, folks like rick rubin who are doing you know producing everything from bluegrass to you know he did some of johnny cash's uh, last works and then he's jumping over to the hip-hop world and started off as a punk guy and you know I, i think the artist mindset is 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 counter to that polarization effect because if you're trying to be creative, you want as much inspiration for that creativity as possible. And shutting yourself down to other artists, I think, is is just an inherently bad thing to do. And artists sense this, and and um, are more than willing to step outside of whatever particular box that they happen to be in. And, and you know uh, for there was a big movement in the in the mid 90s as, as sort of heavy metal was reaching its sort of commercial zenith with bands like Metallica, you know um, and you would I was a young aspiring guitarist at that time and so I was sitting in my basement you know noodling around more than I probably should have been. but you buy all the guitar magazines and you start reading about who various artists favorite inspirations were. and it was amazing to me to read all these heavy metal artists, naming country guitar players as their inspiration and you know as a a 16 year old it's like what do you mean I'm only into Metallica why are you now talking about Chet Atkins Uh, this doesn't make any sense but then you start looking at Chet Atkins and suddenly your world's expanded a little bit because again that artistic perspective is it's intentionally broad and it needs to be
1: Right. And then, and then maybe you get back to the blues beyond that. Exactly. And keeps yeah. going back yeah. and back and back. Mm-hmm.
0: And then you do a Ph.D. and yeah, there it is. <laughs> and so. you end up on a podcast <laughs> exactly. talking about music and democracy. Exactly.
1: I've been resisting the urge to ask you those stereotypical like what album would you take <laughs> with you on a, on a desert oh, island geez. or, you know, yeah. but um, is there anything you can you can recommend um, that people might not be familiar with, but can help them understand a new culture or, or a new new perspective, maybe?
0: I suppose my recommendation would be to just listen to a genre that you have made up your mind about and, and that you think that you would not otherwise listen to. Um, I, I will tell you, uh, you know, putting my, my, my professor hat back on, one of the assignments that I give is I have students do that very exercise. You're going to a desert island, you have five songs to bring with you, and then um, I assess those songs and figure out kind of, you know, we have the hip hop kid who only is into hip hop. I force him to then listen to the playlist of the kid who only listens to country, um, so that they can find that really what is being said oftentimes is is very familiar, um, and it's being said with different sounds underneath of it. But really, the overall human experience is is being conveyed in 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 very similar ways, um, and I think the benefit of that is that it. it shows people that they're really not as different as as they think or or as is being presented in, you know, the infotainment industry or these other sort of mediums.
1: Great. We will leave it there. Um thank you Adam so much uh, for your time today.
0: Thank you for having me.